April is National Poetry Month, and this is our annual Poetry Sunday in which we explore the life and the legacy of one particular poet. Although individual poems can be deeply meaningful without knowing a thing about the person who wrote them, knowing a little more about a poet's background can also make their work much more deeply resonant. And in recent years, we've focused in turn on the poetry and the life of Elizabeth Bishop, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mary Oliver, Emily Dickinson, and the future. I look forward to sharing with you about many other major poets, including Audrian Rich is likely uh, next year, as well as Shijlo Miloš, uh, Denise Levertov, Audre Lorde, uh, and more. For today, though, our focus is on Sylvia Plath. To briefly connect back to our Women's History Month uh, service on building a new mythology, many aspects of uh, Sylvia Plath's life invoke the archetype of Icarus, who escaped the island of Crete on wax wings. He was warned to fly neither too low, for the ocean's dampness might cause his wings to make him drop into the to clog and to fall into the ocean, nor too high where the sun's heat might melt those wax wings. Born in 1932, when many people thought that women weren't supposed to fly high, nevertheless, she persisted. She kept spreading her wings, especially through her writing, trying to touch the sun, seeing how far she could go. And also, like Icarus, um, she was ultimately brought low from her lifelong struggle with depression, which was exacerbated both by life circumstances and by the crushing sexism of her time. She died at the age of 30 on February 11th, 1963. That same morning of February 11th, 1963, only a mile and a half away from her flat in London, the Beatles arrived hours later to begin recording their very first album. And I mentioned that timing to underscore that at the time of Plath's death, the 60s as we have come to think of the 60s hadn't really started yet. They wouldn't really start till the next year. Betty Friedan's The Feminist Mystique, the book that helped really catalyze second wave feminism, that wasn't published until a week after Sylvia Plath died, a book that I think could have been deeply moving and powerful for her. Dr. King wouldn't make his I Have a Dream speech until that August. JFK wasn't assassinated until that November. If Plath were alive today, she would be 90 years old. I mean, she should still be with us. I wish we had the opportunity to experience all that she would have done and written over the last 60 years. But I'm grateful at the same time for the legacy that she did leave behind. It's further significant that Plath was a Unitarian, and not just like, we sometimes like to claim people who like, they're famous and they once went to a Unitarian service. <laughs> like, like, she actually deeply was a Unitarian, and I was inspired to choose her as the focus of this year's Poetry Sunday when I learned that an incredible new biography had been written about her, and I just kept hearing how great this book was. Uh, it's titled Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. Have any of you read it? I would, okay, I would, if, if you get around to it sometime, let me know. It's by Heather Clark, a professor of contemporary poetry at the University of Huddersfield in England. Uh, the New York Times Book Review named it as one of the 10 best books of 2021, and that's even more so because they picked five books of fiction and five books of nonfiction, so it was one of the top five nonfiction books 
uh, written last year. So if this uh, service leaves you curious to learn more, you can learn a whole lot more from that book, not for the least of which reasons that it is very close to 1,000 pages long. Uh, the, it is, it's really long. <laughs> You're welcome for me reading this book. Uh, no, uh, so, but actually it's, it's very fascinating and very well, well written, though there were a few times when I was like, I don't need th quite this much detail on Sylvia Plath, but it was interesting. Uh, if you want something shorter, uh, this also motivated me to finally read The Bell Jar. How many of you have read her, her novel? Okay, I see a few more hands. Uh, that I'd be interested uh, either online or you can say in the chat, uh, what, if those of you who have read The Bell Jar. It has a real kind of feminism meets Catcher in the Rye vibe. Um, there's also her collected poems for which she was um, posthumously awarded the Pulitzer Prize, or you can check out her much shorter selected poems. I like some of her poetry. I actually find, I find her prose extremely gripping. Uh, and, it's, and that was actually, that, that's when she was gonna plan to write novel after novel. So uh, it was what she had planned to do um, before she tragically died. For now, though, to begin to share with you some of Plath's story, she was born in 1932, three years into the Great Depression. And although it was a hard time, she was a precocious child, and in response to uh, uh, her mother read to them, uh, she and her brother, a lot, uh, she was actually reading and writing by the age of five. And in 1940, when she was only eight years old, she experienced a major early loss. Her father died of complications due to undiagnosed diabetes. Uh, her father was a well-respected uh, biology professor at Boston University, but he was highly resistant to going to the doctor, and by all indications, he died unnecessarily of a condition that could have been easily treated. Despite the devastation of her father's death, she continued to write, and only a few months later, at the age of eight, she had her first publication, a poem titled, Poem. It was published in the, the Boston Herald. I will not read it to you, it's not very good. Uh, but she was eight. <laughs> it's wonderful for eight. Uh, years later, while in college, Plath wrote a poem about her father's death that played on the fact that uh, his, one of his major publications was about bees as a biology professor, and he died of, cause, of a cause that in most cases are minor, like a bee sting. Uh, so I invite you to hear an excerpt of that poem titled Lament. She wrote, the sting of bees took away my father who walked in a swarming shroud of wings and scorned the tick of the falling winter. He counted the guns of God a bother, laughed at the ambush of angels' tongues and scorned the tick of falling winter. Oh, ransack the four winds and find another man who can mangle the grin of kings. The sting of bees took away my father who scorned the tick of falling winter. Here's another early poem, this one from 1948 when she was 16 years old. It's titled Recognition. And this poem has a sense, some of you will know the, the John Kabat-Zinn book called Wherever You Go, There You Are, right? That we bring all our drama with us and tend to kind of recreate it. So it has the sense of that poem. In other words, she's noticed that wherever she went in her life, she, like all of us, had this tendency to fall into repetitions of patterns from her past. So she wrote, when I realized that the paint, so this is, let me say more, this is about like moving into a new house and thinking that's going to mean a new start. And then she found it was more complicated than that. She said, and when I realized that the paint had camouflaged an ancient door and that beneath the smooth shellac there laid a trampled hardwood floor, I looked about through angry tears. 
for that remodeled house was all that I could ever own. And while I gazed through the shallowed hall, my mouth curved in a bitter smile, I knew I had lived there before. Along those lines, there's a lot to say about Plath's childhood and how her early family systems, her, relation, her loss of her father, her enmeshment with her mother, how all that kind of played out in her life and reverberated. But for our purposes, I want to shift a little bit and tell you some about her Unitarianism, which really was a significant influence in her life. Because as I researched further, I came to learn she was even more Unitarian than I previously thought. After her father died in 1940, when Plath was eight years old, their family joined the nearby Wellesley uh, Unitarian Church, and her mother, as Nicole says, started teaching Sunday school, or, or what we call RE, religious education classes, and that congregation, the UU Society of Wellesley Hills in Massachusetts, is still around today. So she grew up going to RE classes, later was an uh, active participant in her congregation's uh, youth group, and in addition, she was deeply moved by participating in uh, Unitarian youth conferences on Star Island, which is off the coast of New Hampshire. Have any of you been to Star Island? I see. Okay, just a few hands. That's, that's on my Unitarian bucket list to get around to someday. I've heard it's remarkably beautiful and a, a gorgeous place to go. Yeah, it is a rock. It's a rock off the course. It absolutely is. Uh, while there, she wrote in her diary, Chapel is lovely. There is something here I've never experienced before. Complete peace and love for all. Unitarianism also shaped her social conscience. Her uh, youth group visited a jail, and she kind of got this sense of the, what we would call today the prison industrial complex, and like that, that sort of was awakening for her. She was also sort of dabbled in pacifism and was really wrestling with, you know, maybe we do need to be in World War II, but the kind of reflexive nationalism, she just really, really struggled with that, and Unitarianism gave her a place to, to ask those hard questions. In 1950, around age 18, when UUs often hold what are called uh, coming-of-age rituals for our young people who are graduating high school, Plath described herself as a Unitarian by choice, you know, something she, she chose for herself, not just something she was required to do. And speaking fairly bluntly, she said, quote, I don't like the idea of salvation being spooned out to those too spineless to think for themselves. She added, she was pretty blunt, uh, she was pretty raw. Uh, she added that she could be fairly labeled an atheist, but that she also had respect for life and hope in the potential of humankind. Similarly, she wrote in a letter home to her mother that she believed in the impersonal laws of science as a god of sorts. As a freshman at Smith College, she took a religion class, and in that class she wrote a paper that we still have a copy of called Unitarianism Yesterday and Today in which she described herself as an agnostic humanist. She said further that she joined the Unitarian Church, which preached about a human Jesus and the Bible as literature on account of its tolerance, its inclusion, and its emphasis on reason. And in a quite progressive interpretation of the Bible, similar to what we explored a few weeks ago, she said that Unitarians often look to the moment of Adam and Eve biting the forbidden fruit not as original sin, but as embracing unbounded possibility. Their greatest virtue, the way to the fullest realization of all human potential. In other words, she's saying we should all want to grow up. We should all want to take a, and relish a big bite of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You should want to know, you know, grow up, you know, stop running around naked like children, you know, leave the garden and go explore the world. 
A decade later, in 1961, in which we now know was toward the end of her short life, she wrote another letter to her mother in which she said, I will always be a pagan Unitarian. Another significant influence on Plath's life were her teachers, particularly one high school English teacher. So I think another kind of takeaway from this is the, the influence that public school teachers can have on children. Uh, his name was Wilbury Crockett, and strongly, he, so her English teacher for three years, so had a real strong influence on her and her fellow young literature enthusiasts. Uh, there was kind of this side club that he led in which they read almost a book a week. I mean, that's pretty impressive for high schoolers of major American and British uh, authors. And they were writing four 5,000 word papers a year. I mean, that, that's pretty long. That's like two and a half times uh, an average sermon length. I mean, that's, that's a, a pretty long, that's like an eight to 10 page paper. That's a pretty long argument to sustain as a high schooler. And I think a, a real example of how sometimes when you challenge kids and set a bar high, they can, they can reach it. Here's a poem she wrote around that time in 1948 at age 16 about her growing commitment to writing. It's titled, Neither Moonlight Nor Starlight. She said, why do I stay at my ink-stained desk from the dim gray dawn to the dusk of day? Why do I linger in the loneliness of this bleak place when I could be bathing in moonlight, in starlight, or the spilling gold of the sun? But she says parenthetically, neither moonlight nor starlight are for me. You ask me why I spend my life writing. Do I find it entertaining? Do I find it worthwhile? Above all, does it pay? If not, then is there a reason? Ah, I would like to give you an answer to satisfy you completely, but that is impossible. Listen a while. Believe in me. There is a reason for my writing. Yes, I write only because there is a voice within me that will not be still. And here I want to emphasize, too, that too often Sylvia Plath's story has been told in a way that principally forefronts her mental illness and allows her early death to unduly overshadow the rest of her life. That was one significant factor in her life, but there was so much more, including this passionate impulse to write and create. She was an academic superstar. She was a perennial prize winner. Even after spending a few months at an inpatient ward following a depressive episode in which she tried to end her own life in college, she still graduated magna cum laude from Smith College. She was then awarded a prestigious Fulbright Fellowship. She attended Cambridge University, where she graduated with high honors. She was so impressive that her undergraduate alma mater, Smith College, you know, one of the seven sisters, this is no, no slouch, invited her back to begin teaching, even though she didn't have a PhD. To quote from her biographer, her mastery of English literature's past and present intimidated her students it even tended to intimidate her fellow poets. Like they would do a line and she'd say, oh, that's like Yeats. That's like, like she could just trace these. She just had a, a, an immense grasp of the history of poetry. Later, Plath made small talk with T.S. Eliot uh, at London cocktail parties where she was known as the model of wit and decorum. Very few friends realized how deeply she sometimes struggled with depression because it only presented itself episodically. In college, she aced her exams, drank in moderation, dressed sharply, was known to date Yale men and men from Amherst. She struck most as the proverbial golden girl. 
In retrospect, it is clear that a major contribution to her premature death was that she was failed by the sexist mental health institutions of her day. To put the point sharply, it seems unlikely that her psychiatrist would have recommended shock therapy on a brainy but depressed Yale man after just two outpatient sessions. In turn, that psychiatrist, I would say, was failed by the sexist training that he received. At that time, in the early 1950s, 91% of psychiatrists were men, and they were trained to regard high ambition and strong-willed women as that itself being a sign of pathology. And women who refused to function domestically uh, in terms of cleaning, cooking, childcare, shopping, when they returned home, that was often seen, oh, they need to be recommitted. You know, th this is, of course, what Betty Friedan was writing about in the, in the Feminine Mystique. Plath famously wrote about her experience in a, lightly fiction, in a very lightly fictionalized way that left a lot of her publishers worried they were going to get sued <laughs> of how lightly fictionalized it was in the bell jar. In 1956, at age 23, Plath married the British poet Ted Hughes. Although her um, posthumous fame has eclipsed his, uh, he is you know, quite well known in his own right, especially at the time, and is remembered as one of the 50 greatest uh, British writers since 1945. Here's just the opening of a long poem she published in 1958 in The New Yorker during the early years of her marriage. It's titled Muscle Hunter at Rock Harbor. I come before the water. Colorists came to get the good of Cape Light that scours sand grit to sided crystal and buffs and sleeks the blunt hills. Of the three fishing smacks beached on the banks of the river's backtracking tail. In early 1960, at age 28, we, which we know in retrospect was entering into the final two years of her life, but at the time there were many reasons for happiness, for hope. She had married a brilliant poet. She was soon to become a mother. She had found a charming flat in central London. She had just signed a contract for her own first poetry book. And two years later, if she'd had just a little more support, if she hadn't been so scarred from her previous mistreatment at the hands of mental health professionals of the time, I really think her life could have gone differently. I invite you to hear some of the title poem from that first poetry collection, The Colossus, which is about a number of things, but perhaps most centrally about her anger at her lost father. I shall never get you put together entirely. It's like Humpty Dumpty, right? I shall never get you put together entirely, pieced, glued, and properly jointed. Mule bray, pig grunt, and body cackles proceed from your great lips. It's worse than a barnyard. Perhaps you consider yourself an oracle, mouthpiece of the dead or some god or other. Thirty years now I have labored to dredge the silt from your throat. I am none the wiser. To say a little bit about her marriage, it was in some, days quite, in some ways quite progressive for the time, although there was often some, some very hurtful parts, including some domestic violence. Um, and it mostly was Ted toward her, but she also, like, toward the beginning, she, she bit his cheek early on, like, left a mark that was there for, like, a month. Like, there, there was a lot going on in that, in that marriage. Uh, it was, so, but in some ways, it was quite progressive for the time. Uh, Ted was in the room the whole time for the birth of both their children. That was quite unusual um, then. Also, atypically, they split the childcare to give one another undistracted writing time. Uh, 
But Plath did, however, end up with a vastly disproportionate share of the household chores. So he helped with childcare, but not like cleaning and cooking. As their marital strife increased, eventually breaking on the rocks of Hughes, of Hughes blatantly having an affair, she channeled her rage into writing. And I'm sure that Freud would have had a field day that her father was a biologist and her husband had a very strong interest in zoology. And I'll read just a part of a poem she wrote about Hughes playing on all that titled Zookeeper's Wife. Uh, the subtext is very thinly veiled in this poem. Uh, you checked the diet charts and took me to play with the boa constrictor in the fellow's garden. Sometimes a snake is just a snake. Some, anyway, okay. I pretended I was in the tree of knowledge. I entered your Bible. I boarded your ark with the sacred baboon in his wig and wax ears and the bare-furred bird-eating spider clamming or, clamoring around its glass box with eight-fingered hands. I can't get it out of my mind. How our courtship lit the tindery cages. Your two-horned rhinoceros opened a mouth dirty as a boot sole and big as a hospital sink for my cube of sugar. Its bog breath gloved my arm to the elbow. The snails blew kisses like black apples. Nightly now I flog apes, owls, bears, sheep over their iron style and still don't sleep. And related to Danielle's spoken meditation, or, yeah, so it, it's actually, I'm, I'm actually reading you her poem. If any of these, like, I'm actually not even touching her truly raw and controversial stuff, which you can go out there and read for yourself. That, that, was, that was fairly raw but veiled. She has a lot of just unveiled poems, uh, and you can check those out for yourself. And related to Danielle's spoken meditation earlier about the support that communities like UUCF can offer us at their best, it is haunting in March of 1962 at what we now know was the, uh, near the beginning of the final year of her life to read that she was moved to tears, that a friend happened to find a, a sermon when they went to a Unitarian congregation. They found that sermon moving, thought Plath might appreciate it, and mailed it to her. And receiving that sermon, she wrote, she was moved to tears and wrote back, I'd really be a churchgoer if I was back in Wellesley or America. The Unitarian church is my church. How I miss it. There is just no choice here. And of course, there is Unitarian but it's very, uh, British Unitarianism is very, very different from American uh, Unitarianism. Her life, again, really could have gone differently if she'd been le just a little less isolated in that terrible winter of 1963. And it makes me think of, you know, what if she'd been part of a community that sang songs like our opening hymn, right? How could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that your loving is a miracle? and how deeply you're connected to my soul. That's what she needed and didn't have. At the same time, and you know, she also, she reached out to women writers and just was rebuffed, like she just didn't have any community. At the same time, there were periods in that final year when she reached her greatest heights of productivity. It had groundbreaking um, creativity. In October of 1962 alone, she wrote almost a poem a day, and not just like she wrote a poem, like incredible, you know, landmark poetry. That month alone has been called one of the most extraordinary literary outpourings of the entire 20th century. The poems from this final period are posthumously pu published as her aerial poems. The title of Heather Clark's formidable biography, Red Comet, is drawn from a poem written during this time titled Stings. 
I'll read you just the final two stanzas. They thought death was worth it, but I have a self to recover, a queen. Is she dead? Is she sleeping? Where has she been with her lion-red body and her wings of glass? Now she is flying more terrible than she ever was. Red scar in the sky, red comet over the engine that killed her, the mausoleum, the wax house. We could add the domesticity. It's not a coincidence that Plath's death from depression and suicide happened on the very same day she was scheduled to re-enter an inpatient uh, mental health facility, whereas many people today have received immense help from inpatient mental health care. Plath clearly had PTSD from the mistreatment she had received the first time. Heightening the tragedy, there was actually the facility she was scheduled to enter had just opened a new ward that was quite progressive. It might have actually given her the care that she needed, but she really didn't know about that. She knew really of the, the previous terrible reputation this hospital had and why they had opened this new ward. She just didn't have the trust that it would go well. She was deeply scarred and feared that her horrific experience during college would just be repeated. When Hughes wrote to Plath's mother following Sylvia's death, he rightly recognized that she was a world historical talent. But even here, and in the literary critic I'm going to uh, read in just a moment, you'll still hear the sexism. They praise her not as what she was, a world historically great poet, period. But they, they compare her only to other female poets. Hughes wrote, in her last months, she became a great poet, and no other woman poet except for Emily Dickinson can begin to be compared with her. And here you hear is British, certainly no living American. <laughs> so, the British living literary critic uh, Alfred Alvarez also was particularly influential in helping draw attention to her uh, death, because in her, a lot of the obituaries about her, she was described as Ted Hughes' wife, you know, not as uh, Sylvia Plath. So, and he said, in the last months, she has been writing as though possessed. She is clearly a genius, he said, and her recent poetry represents a totally new breath, breath in modern verse and establishes her as the most gifted woman poet of our time. Still, he said, the loss to literature is inestimable. Today, it is clear that though she is a world historically great poet and writer, period, um, uh, a decade after her death, uh, her work was particularly influential in the women's movement of the 1970s. And in addition to her poetry, her novel, The Bell Jar, continues to sell about 100,000 copies a year you know, to this day. And as we prepare to conclude, let me um, bring us back full circle. We noted at the beginning that Sylvia Plath's life is often likened to the Icarus myth, who launched too far, too fast, and flew too high, too close to the sun. As with many things, the Icarus analogy is true, but it's partial. It doesn't capture the fullness of Plath's life and legacy. Plath's biographer Heather Clark invites us to consider that an equally important archetype for Sylvia Plath is the myth of Ariadne, who spun a thread to help Theseus find his way out of the labyrinth. Unlike this labyrinth, there was a minotaur at the center, right, that Theseus went, and, and Ariadne spun that thread to help him find his way back out. Like Ariadne, uh, Plath left behind threads of influence that live on that we too can, can pick up on and read. Her writing continues to help lead an increasing numbers of readers 
out of the oppressive mazes in which they find themselves. Her life, her books, challenge us to follow her lead in taking the risk of exploring our own creative impulses. Her legacy calls us to, to demand greater freedom and liberation for ourselves and for others. As Unitarian Universalists, it's also significant that Sylvia Plath was one of our own. And as we continue to hold our, her life and legacy in our heart, let's rise and body her spirit. I want us to sing a song that's about creating the world that Plath deserved and didn't get. Let's sing hymn 170. We are a gentle, angry people. <laughs> 